A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the new edition of TLS Voices. My name is Stig Abel, editor of the Times Literary Supplement. Thea is on a seemingly interminable holiday at the moment, which is outrageous. So I'm joined this week by TLS Arts Editor, Northerner, and only occasional reader of the paper, Lucy Dallas. Lucy, are you going to answer the charge of being only occasional I, reader of the paper? I refute the charge. I read it regularly and think it's marvellous. And also, can I say, you forgot to say token northerner, but that's fine. It's not, it's not it's nothing tokenistic. I'm a token... Well, we're, it's, we're very equal opportunities here. I'm a Midlander. You're a northerner. Thea is an Italian northerner. That's true. It's a, it's a hugely inclusive place, the TLS. Each week, we will be coming to you to discuss major pieces from this week's TLS on big ideas or authors. Coming up on the show this week, it's that time of year when big fiction books start to appear. Our lead pieces this week are indeed fiction reviews. Leo Robson on J.M. Katsia's rather bemusing, pseudo-mystical and not very good, it would seem, The School Days of Jesus. And Claire Loudon on Jonathan Safran Furr's dazzling and surprisingly rude Here I Am. Claire will be popping in to discuss the latter. This week is also a classics special in the TLS, so we shall turn to our very special classicist, Dame Mary Beard, as she should be, to discuss, into Alia as it were, whether Aristophanes can be fun whether the ancients were atheists and what connects Greek tragedy to modern warfare. Finally, we have a freelance piece from the Turkish journalist Jan Dandar, who is facing five years in prison for daring to criticise the regime of the autocratic and, since the failed coup attempt, the ever more powerful Turkish president Erdogan. Jan will be joining us to discuss his extraordinary situation. But first, Jonathan Safran Fur has, in novelistic terms, broken the silence of more than a decade and produced a new novel. Entitled Here I Am, it is a very large, well-peopled book about four generations of an American Jewish family set in an imagined near future in which an earthquake under the Dead Sea leads to a breakdown in the region, culminating in a war between Israel and various Middle Eastern states. And it's fair to say that Claire Loudon's enjoyment of Fur's writing leaps from the page this week. She calls the book a glorious carpet bag of a novel with room for jokes, anecdotes, riffs, memories, speeches, theories, digressions and all number of odds and ends. Claire joins Lucy and me in the studio now. Claire, first of all, make a case for this as a great book. It's a very good book, yes, definitely. As to whether it's a great book, if you set it beside an obvious comparator, I think, is Bellow, who does something similar with Augie March. They're very different books, but Augie March is a book with a huge amount of space. It's a repository for yeah. many things that Bellow wants to just to put down. And there's obviously 
strong connections between the life and the fiction with both authors, I think. Not that that particularly matters. Um, if I had to pick between this and Augie March, I'd pick Augie March. Yeah. The ambition makes it imperfect, but what's yeah. gained is so great that you don't mind the imperfections. It's better, is it? It's to, to, for someone to try something extremely difficult and ambitious and nearly get there than th- for somebody to try something reasonably difficult and I mean, actually that's a different discussion possibly no i but think that's a very interesting discussion absolutely um risk taking in fiction and there's a huge amount of risk here it's risky because he's exposing himself there is okay i don't know how much of it is his life and nor do i care but you're reading incredibly revealing material about the main character mm. and you believe it all you think this has happened whether it's happened to him or not you think this is this is true and who is the main character? The main character is one of this Block family. Is he, the, is he would, the screenwriter? The main character is Jacob Block, the screenwriter, absolutely. I was very interested in how much of himself he put in, because as you say in your review, in, in his first book, Everything is Illuminated, it's about somebody called Jonathan Safran Foer. Yes. Going on a... Look, looking back into his own family history. And he's kind of self-referential, the, the main character in this book here. I mean, exactly as you said, uh, it, it feels risky because you don't know how much of him is in it. Do you think that's kind of... I sometimes wonder if that's slightly bad faith. There's, there's a kind of French... It's almost a tradition of doing it now. You know, autofiction, they say, this is about me and it's my name and it's my situation, but it's a novel. Yeah, so, like Paul Auster does well, it. You yeah. can, it just means you can sort of have your cake and eat it, and I wonder... I think in lots of ways that's one of the kind of the trends of now, isn't it? If you mm. think about Newsguard, if you think about Huelbeck, there are lots of yeah. writers doing that, Dave Eggers to an extent. Actually, this book doesn't do that, which is strange. If you if you take out what I've written about there about postmodern self-referential aspect yeah. of it, the screenwriter, it's in there, but it's just it's it's a kind of courtly nod to that. And I think it's there's a, I think Zadie Smith says somewhere, tell the truth through whatever veil comes to hand, but tell it. Yeah. And I thought of that a lot when I was reading this. You think here's mm. someone who has got a huge amount to say, and he's doing whatever he can to make it possible for him to say it. As, as frankly as he can. Which I find rather heartening because uh, I think you can count the number of good postmodern novels on maybe two hands but maybe only one hand. I find it as a movement sort of curiously depressing and enervating as a reader when you read novels about novels about novels. Self-eating. And, and you just yeah. think, well, why don't you just tell a story that I care about? So the other thing that's striking about this book that you talk about is the size of it. I wondered whether that's important because you kind of make the case for a novel that's got everything in it. It's important that it's kind of filled and crammed. And this at the point in the quote I gave at the beginning, you know, it's it's a glorious carpet bag of a novel with a sense that it's that it's got a lot in it. It made me think of Henry James talking about the nineteenth century Russians as baggy monsters, those sort of yes. big books. But I love a big mm. book and there's something that you when you see yeah. a great novel in the sense of large as well as uh, interesting that's one of the great pleasures in life isn't it yeah i completely agree although i tend to prefer really short books <laughs> i think you've got to be very 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 good to, to merit going over 500 pages no martin amos um, he talks about when he, re- he reviewed a tom wolf book i think it was man in full and where he basically said it was the greatest friend you'll ever have because he was traveling for a week and every and every day he knew he could sit down and read 100 pages i actually didn't agree with that book but there is there aren't that many are there i'm trying to think of a, a great long piece of important fiction i mean i, I enjoyed franson's corrections in, in a similar way i, I thought i corrections thought that is a good comparison actually in the, in the way that freedom is kind of much more schematic and polished and the corrections is 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 as you say, it's generous and huge, and there's so much in it. Is that what you? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I totally agree. It's that term, hysterical real- realism, that's used slightly disparagingly, but it's. It reminds me slightly of. Um, I've now forgotten his name. 
The man who wrote Catch-22, but all his... Um, I'm not supposed to forget. Heller. Joseph, Joseph Heller. Heller. Yes. yes. And not just Catch-22. I mean, that doesn't particularly sound like Catch-22, because Catch-22 is predicated on a fairly sort of specific set of circumstances, but his other novels, which are about families and men trying so, to come to terms with... Something Happened. Yes, I'm I thinking some, about. I, I love, love something, something happened. happened. I mean, it sounds a bit similar, apart from the the kind of the the war that's in it. I want to digress that for one second, Lucy, because you remind me. I was looking through because uh, the sad man I am, old copies of the TLS, and, and I found one from 1962 where we reviewed Catch 22 for the first time. Uh, we gave it three paragraphs in a review with another book. And we actually said, "This is TLS classic uh, power of foresight." This is an uneven novel, thinly spread over many pages. And that's, that's pretty much all we said about oh, ca- Catch-22. I've never read it. Have you not? So, oh. oh, it's brilliant. It's, it's, on that review. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You either trust us now or trust the TLS from 1962. But yeah, I think that's right. That's the idea of cramming a book. You've got to be able to get away with it. Michael Chabon in Cavalier and Clay, that's another example of a long book with which repays reading, I think. Yeah, there's another Chabon that, uh, that's also quite big and, and does just that as well. He kind of, if the book is itself, if you look at its architecture, isn't something that you, you might necessarily rave about. But as you're reading it, every paragraph has got something fantastic in it. And it's yeah. just it just keeps coming and coming. Something happened. What a great title for, ex- for exactly that. Yes, yeah. And and also it's got lots of different... It, I mean, it's told in, in one one sort of recognisable voice, but there's a lot of different tones and registers. It's funny and then it's awful and then it's kind of... There's a bit where it's, you know, the, where it, it's kind of humdrum. And it, and it sounds as though the Saffron Foa is a bit like that, that it's got so much in it that you're kind of going up and down. I completely agree. It's got so many different modes and, and really not all of them work. He does, mm. as with the earlier books, he nudges up a bit too close to sentimentality for my taste at mm. times. Really? But it's, yeah, uh, yeah. But you need that in a big book. Because I, I wonder that, because we often curse sentimentality, but there's a, there's, a, there's a little part of it that you kind of need to engage you. And maybe the only way to, to suck you in is to have a bit of sentimentality. I, I'm not against it. I wouldn't rip it all out. But yeah. I, I, for me, he presses slightly too hard on that pedal occasionally. Really? Uh, but he gets away with it, absolutely. I mean, by the end, I was deeply moved. Can I ask, is the, and is the bit about the, the fictitious war and the earthquake, because it feels a little bit more removed, because in terms of the kind of Jewishness, for everything illuminated, it was, it was an integral... It, look, it looked as though there were two strands, but actually they were both, they were both kind of bound up with each yes. other. And Extremely Loud, Incredibly Close was, it was about 9-11, wasn't it? And it kind of had to be about that. But this, this one, the kind of world event, feels a bit further away. Yeah, it is. It's absolutely further away and it serves the domestic plot, I would say, rather than the other way around. It's not a novel about the destruction of Israel. Is it not? No, it's a novel that... It's about forcing a choice, I think. I I don't think it's a novel you can spoil, so I'll, I'll talk frankly about the plot and the structure, which I think is incredibly clever. And that's something else that he... In the same way that he has several different modes within it, he's also very, very good at jumping from one raft to another in terms of the narrative and he Mm. uses that incredibly effectively seemingly without effort although obviously a huge amount of thought and effort must have gone into it 10 years is is a long time to be thinking about something but in the let me find how far through this is this is page 277 you hear at the beginning that there is um the first sorry the first sentence when the destruction of Israel commenced, Isaac Block was weighing whether to kill himself or to move to the Jewish home. So that's how it begins. You know that's going to happen. There's, mm. It's, it's a good opening sentence, actually, as, mm. as opening sentences go. <laughs> it, it drags you in. It I would does say. drag you a in. Bit. 
you know it's there and and then sort of almost nothing happens until near the end of this this enormous first section which is as long as most novels is really um when the earthquake occurs and then he does this fantastic and amb- ambitious and again I, i'm not sure it totally comes off but it's it's worth the chance this tiny little section which is about 10 pages long and he whips you through the next 14 days of the political fallout from the earthquake so you know as the reader that there's going to be a second earthquake you know as the reader that um a squad of Israeli extremists are going to penetrate the Dome of the Rock and set it on fire. And you know how everything's going to play out after that. And then he jumps back to the domestic narrative and he runs you through the family at home during that two-week period. So you as the reader have this privileged information. They're watching the news and wondering what's going to happen. And you as the reader know exactly you know, how it's going to play out. Interesting. So that is, that's another postmodern thing in a way, in, in the sense that we know more than, than they do. But it, but it doesn't sound worked up Oh, I just think it's an extension or... of something terribly old-fashioned. I think that's right there. Oh, you think in, it's omniscient, the omniscient, the omniscient narrator? narrator yes. yeah, I think yeah, it okay. is. And actually yeah. his narrator is, is, for me, pleasantly omniscient. Like I like very mm. much that he's able to tell you within a paragraph what the husband and wife are both thinking and you're able to kind of have that privilege, privileged access to both minds. Mm. So I think it's just a kind of extension of that. And it's striking though, therefore, that it feels like a, a, a novel about domestic life then. There's a lot of sex, is there a lot of sex in it that the review sort of picks out a bit of... There is uh, a lot of sex. Is he good He's at sex, as it were? He's at sex and I always admire that. He's very, very good at sex writing, I think. And it's because it's, yeah. I mean, it sounds sort of rude and explicit and there's a bit about the grandchild masturbation and there's, a, there's obviously an affair at the start where there's text messages yeah, discovered yeah. so it's, it's quite sort of mo- it's quite modern on sex He's, it's modern on people having sex it's modern on people not having sex as well when the husband and wife are kind of failing at that he's very heartbreakingly frank about that but back to the the you, a question you asked earlier that i don't think i fully answered about israel in the end the prime minister of israel calls all of the diasporan jews back to Israel to fight and it forces a choice for Jacob Bloch just as the text messages force a choice in his domestic life and it's about a situation that simmers along and you don't have to state your identity or say where you are or how you feel and then something happens and you do you have to say here I am I guess yeah Yeah. without spoiling it does is there a definitive conclusion in in that area is is there an end to the political story that they set start up is there is there a sort of closure yeah there is there is closure but I really think it's very much the background to to the block story and as far as the closure for Jacob goes in relation to the political crisis having been forced to a choice both politically and personally that choice is of course much less definite than it seems at the time of making it and that's another thing that I think is brilliant about this book and is is great when it happens in long novels is that actually the last hundred pages or so are the ending and you see events trickling on and on and on so there is there isn't any kind of final line drawn he shows how life spins on and obviously you have to end a novel somewhere but when you kind of gesture into the distance like that I think it makes for a much more satisfying and convincing ending it sounds clear it's such a lovely piece I I, I hope people buy the paper and read it it's just a lovely review of a book you can your affection for it you can hear it when you speak about it but you can really get it in the uh, in the review as well and i think it's a i think I, i'm going to actually read this book which is not always the case on <laughs> fiction reviews in the tls i'm sad to say but I, I think i would actually like to read this book well i hope i haven't oversold it but um i'm i'm actually going to go and pick up a, a final copy i hope because i saw something in the sunday times where they printed an extract from it and it was from a, a passage that i'd remembered as being kind of very funny very good 
But in the Sunday Times, it was even funnier because he'd added bits. And this sort of interested me about it too, the idea that you'd think with something this big, you'd always be going back and ripping out. But it seems that somehow between proof and, and oh finishing, God. he's gone and added that's jokes. So, so, it really, yeah. so it really is crammed full. It is absolutely bursting. Lovely. Claire Lennon, thank you so much for joining us. So moving on, I am uh, rather pleased with the cover of the TLS this week. The theme is very much the modernisation of the classics and is illustrated by a statue of antiquity clad in fashionable modern garb. The image is called Hipster in Stone by Leo Kayar. Lucy is, of course, fully aware of my love-hate relationship with hipsterdom and why I take such pleasure in the image. Aren't you, Lucy? I'm, I'm aware of the um, one side of the relationship. I haven't heard much love, but I'm, I'm very happy to hear some. Well, it's, you're right, it is a hate-hate relationship with <laughs> hipsterdom. I'm intrigued by it. Anyway, it's a, it's a lovely picture but the issue is is an important one which is illustrating which is how do cultural artifacts from ancient history speak to the modern world how do we stop the classics being consigned to the ghetto of academic interest only pieces in the paper include simon goldhill on the pleasures and difficulties inherent in reading and translating aristophanes helen morales on successful attempts to make greek tragedies relevant to shell-shocked american troops and joy Connolly on the extent to which the ancients developed the ideas of atheism thankfully we are joined by one of the world leading figures in maintaining the relevance of the classics, Mary Beard, the wonderful author, broadcast and classics editor of the TLS. Hi, Mary. Hi, Sig. <laughs> Shall we start with Aristophanes? Because it is really interesting. It's a lovely piece by Simon Goldhill. There's a peculiar problem, is there, not with comedy from the past? It doesn't really age well. Uh, comic language, especially what Goldhill calls the hooliganism of sexual slang, dates terribly and a sense of humour appears to be rather contingent on the period. I remember Mary sort of doubtfully having to plough through plautus at school and never a rib really being tickled at any point. Uh, Can Aristophanes be funny, do you think? There's a real problem which Goldhill brings out very well, I think, about ancient comedy, which is, first of all, whether we can find it funny. And we've got lots of tactics for doing that (laughs) and uh, introducing a bit of slapstick so that, you know, we can all go to a play of Plautus now if it's well put on and and enjoy an evening of some quite happy chortling. But the bigger problem which he reaches to, I think, is where did the ancient Greeks and Romans find this funny and how? And the problem is that all we have is a text. We don't know where they laughed. We have no clue about the ancient sense of humour, apart from a few bits of theory that they try to share with us. And so we're kind of looking at these great masterpieces of comedy, you know, standing up there as, as the classics of comedy, without knowing quite how we make it funny for ourselves, whether we're travestying it, but also not really knowing what they thought was funny. And it's it's terribly easy to kind of go through it and imagine them laughing. But that is imagination, because we just don't know how it went down. One thing that struck me is, and we talk about this sort of hooliganism of sexual slang, do you think... Because on one level, Aristophanes is hugely sophisticated and self-referential, and we'll come on to that in in a bit. But on the other, I I don't wish to be crude, Mary, but it does seem to rely slightly on what might be called sort of knob gags. It's tits and bums, really. Yeah, Uh, it's an awful lot of tits and bums. Now, is that, do you you think there, because that's what what the audience wanted, there was a certain baseness to to all of this, jokes about buggery and and ejaculation and the like, or, or is that not key to it? I think it's, again, it's really, really hard. And, and it's 
it's that kind of side of Aristophanes, which certainly 50, 100 years ago made every classicist try to sort of make this all right by turning it into the last gasp of some early fertility ritual. (laughs) But it didn't matter that there were lots of willies there. But actually, I think what we're dealing with, or most, most people now either presenting or translating or commenting on Aristophanes are really going to say, look, we've got to, we've got to look the phallic nature of ancient comedy, humor, the phallic nature of ancient life right in the eye. How we Sorry. then make that funny for ourselves, how we then don't end up with poor old Aristophanes having a trigger warning for you know, the most <laughs> sensitive souls, uh, is then another problem. That's what I was about to say. Sorry. You know, you might think it was rather kind of staid and that we couldn't relate to it, but actually it's much ruder than anything you would find, certainly on primetime telly. Yeah, you could put it on telly. Show. I mean, you know, you'd even have trouble after, after the watershed. Mm. And, it, and it's not just rude it's kind of aggressively rude yes this isn't just i mean to say it's tits and bums is being a bit nice about it yes it's not benny hill it's much more kind of active than that isn't it yeah and it's you know this is a culture in which rape can be a joke yeah and you know that's always going to be a problem for us i mean there's other ancient comedy where actually you discover that at the end uh, it's a happy ending all along because the guy raped a woman who turned out to be his fiancée anyway so everything was kind of tied up. Well you kind of have that a bit in Measure for Measure don't you where all at the end uh, Angelo ends up marrying uh, Mariana despite treating her abysmally and because he marries her therefore post hoc everything's okay. Yeah and that's that's directly drawn from, um, from these classical sources and it's there isn't there isn't any way round this you know that uh, ancient culture not just ancient comedy was a culture in which uh, people talked about and no doubt I'm afraid did rape in a way that we find no, absolutely um, unbelievably shocking in, in other respects the modernity um, he is Postmodern. I mean, the thing that strikes me about this review and my recollections of, of, of sort of trying to read the frogs at, 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 at school, he's very postmodern. He is very self-referential. He talks, I mean, he talks at one point, uh, Goldhill, about metafictionality and intertextuality squared, because he is writing about characters like Euripides and their reception of their plays. And he's writing about the failure to present a tragedy within a comedy. That's hugely would be seen to be very postmodern now, wouldn't it? Yeah, that's what makes Aristophanes peculiarly difficult for us to classify, because you have to say, right, OK, on the one hand, there's this um, uh, yeah, total phallic engagement of it. On the other, uh, within that frame, we've got all kinds of debates going on about generic boundaries, about the difference between tragedy and comedy, about the conditions under which writing is possible. Uh, so we're asking the the audience to reflect on their own experience of being a comic and a tragic audience in a way that would actually not just seem a bit too filthy for primetime television, but certainly... Um, would seem a bit difficult too. Um, there's very much uh, very late night Channel 4 stuff here. I mean, what's challenging about it, and in some ways this is what comes out of the Gold Hill piece, I think, is that you know, why this interest, 
why this literature is so challenging and interesting and important for us is because precisely it doesn't fit into our own comforting and reassuring classification of literature, whether high or low, difficult or easy, um, sophisticated or crude. And it also seems to be written for, I mean, obviously this is guesswork, but a very, very sophisticated audience. If if they're being asked to talk, to think about where the boundaries are and they know who Euripides is, and, and also Goldhill says, I think, that, that in the second version of The Clouds, Aristophanes' own play, he talks about the fact that the first version was a flop. Yeah, That's a yeah. highly engaged audience there, yeah, isn't it? This is this is an audience. Uh, Aristophanes is not talking down to his audience. He's assuming that his audience audience is are, are sophisticated, not necessarily readers, because many of them couldn't read, but sophisticated. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Literary critics, orally. You know, and I think in, in, in another way... That's, that's also a kind of lesson for us there, you know, that you know, the popular culture of the Athenian democracy was in some ways a very high culture. That wasn't because the Athenians were all clever. It's because popular culture wasn't afraid of being high. And, and actually, there's a really good point lesson for us there. I think you're totally right, Mary, is that ten, generally speaking, people underestimate the sophistication of a wide audience. And I think it's very easy to, to go down to the lowest denominator sometimes. But uh, all broad audiences are probably capable of more sophistication than of often modern productions or modern cultural artefacts give them credit for. Yeah, I think so. And I think that you know, to see that from the from the other side... 
we also have to be a bit careful about not, as I've been almost guilty of doing in the last few minutes, undermining our own primetime viewing because one of the things that, however bad a name it's got, things like media studies taught us is that, you know, EastEnders is a sophisticated commodity if you look at it in certain ways. I mean, I think one's always very caught about populism and high culture within one's own culture. It's rather easier probably to to see the paradoxes more clearly uh, when you're looking at the past. The the only possible thing that that the Aristophanes reminded me of, a a modern thing, the only thing I could think of that was in any way similar was in the thick of it and those sorts of, yeah, those comedies which are very, very political. You actually need quite a lot of insider knowledge and they're absolutely filthy. Yeah. And and it's and you have to keep up. You yeah. can't if you don't concentrate for thirty seconds. And in some ways, actually, the two are both now considered the pitch of sophistication. Yeah. Saying the c word in a in a TV comedy and talking about politics are both sort of symbols of sophistication. Yeah, and it's both important and a problem for us when we're looking at you know, Aristophanes because we're you know, we're not on the street in fifth century Athens. We don't. We can try to infer what the political background is behind these jokes but it's actually damn hard and a lot of people when they're university students and they're trying to you know they're trying to read this they can get bogged down in a a political world and a nuanced political world that they don't understand and they would say quite rightly you know just imagine looking at the thick of it in 200 years time you know how do we penetrate that? And that's one of the reasons that it's, that it's difficult sometimes to find what's funny in it. Let's move on to the other pieces in, 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 in the paper I want to talk about. Because Aristophanes, that's mentioned in the review, can be, uh, in Lysistrata, be sort of appropriated by an anti-war movement. But yes, <laughs> I think slightly. I mean, the idea that that, that play is uh, um, appropriated by anti-war movements or feminists is uh, one of life's little mysteries. Yeah, that's probably true. But uh, in, 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 the notion of anti-war in tune, because the, another piece we have in the papers, Helen Morales, is looking at the connection between modern warfare and Greek tragedy. Uh, it's a really interesting uh, piece, this, and I, I think very relevant uh, today. I was only talking at, at the weekend about how uh, the disgraceful way, really, in which veterans are treated in this country with no sort of centralised state role to support them. Uh, and this is an example of another charity she writes about, the Theatre of War Project, in which a guy called Brian Dorries takes performances of tragedies to soldiers and performances of things like Sophocles' Ajax show to soldiers that their experiences of shell shock, their experiences of the trauma of, of warfare is not a modern phenomenon, it is a universal phenomenon. Do you think this is a, a, a profitable way of, of behaving, showing tragedies to soldiers? Showing tragedies to anybody is quite a good idea, probably. But th- this Theatre of War project that Brian Doris has been so instrumental in has has been extraordinarily successful in the United States, and you can't but you know, applaud it. I mean, I think you know, there's a little bit of a danger in going too far in all this, you know, and saying, do you know what a veteran needs? We just need a bit of Greek tragedy and it'll all be okay. Yeah. But what is clear that as part of a veterans, a programme for veterans, something that has been extraordinarily useful, helpful, powerful, and I think life-changing, has been picking some of these Greek tragedies, which themselves think 
think about the consequences and the problems of war and veterans and soldiers and violence. They are fairly inaccessible. I mean, I've read Greek tragedy uh, at university. You're always struck, or at least I'm always struck, by the, the sort of formalism, the ritualism of the structure and the language, which obviously had its place in terms of the performance at the time, but now at the distance of, uh, of millennia, they do feel a little inaccessible. Do you think it's hard to break those structures down to get at the essence? I think one of the things that... The, the, the Doris Project helps with is doing precisely that. I mean, leaving aside the veteran aspect of it, the idea that these performances of these, as you say, highly difficult, highly formalized, highly ritualized plays can speak to people. Now, I think that from the point of view of the modern classicist, you're always on a bit of a tightrope here because you want these plays to speak. And many of them have spoken in all kinds of different circumstances over the 20th and 21st centuries, and that famously um, anti-war movements were not using Aristophanes' Lysistrata, they were using Euripides' Women of Troy, and saying, look at the consequences of war. And I think all all this is good. You have to be a bit careful about too easily equating our own emotional and actually very vivid response to some of these productions, you don't want to equate that necessarily with an ancient response. As long as you make that distinction, then I think, honestly, however anybody makes tragedy, or comedy for that matter, speak to a modern audience, is good. You know, one of the one of the most extraordinary things, really, of the last 20 or 30 years, if you just take West End Theatre, has been the number of Greek tragedies which are still doing precisely that. Now, whether Euripides would have recognised what he saw if he went to the National Theatre, heaven only knows. And in some ways, that's an important caveat, but in another way, it doesn't matter. Can I ask you a question about that as well? I mean, a slightly kind of devil's advocate question. In terms yeah. of the the relevance of the let's say let's say the tragedies um, and here it's to veterans and we you hear other stories about you know about uh, teaching children Latin in very difficult schools and they blossom and they have wonderful results and and you hear about the kind of uh, application of classics to people who are having a difficult time for whatever reason the devil's advocate question is 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 there something inherent is this because it is there is something inherent in the classical material or is it because people are focusing on people who are not focused on very much therefore if you taught them Shakespeare they would also blossom or arguably if you taught them mathematics or music I'm pretty hard-headed and also self-interested here I can't help thinking and I believe this that what you have in classical literature is some of the greatest literature the world has ever created and we've partly made it that Mm. by continuing to study it engaging people with that is going to be for many or for some, a life-changing experience. Now, so would it be, you're absolutely right, with Shakespeare. And I have some of the doubts that you have, Lucy, that that actually there's a kind of, you know, bit of a gooiness that sometimes creeps in at the edges, you know. Here we are, We, you know, it, it is only through what Aeschylus said that we could confront Yes, that we could the reach these people, whereas actually if, if, if they had some more focus on them to begin with, yeah. they might yeah. not be in but such Mary, need name of And there are, other wa- there are other ways of doing it. Classics mm. is only one, but yes. it just happens to be a good way. And if there are people 
who can use these texts rather than others. They're all part of them, I say. Though you always, always, always have to be careful of you know, not to say these are the only texts that would work. Yes, this will save your life. Yeah. This will save your life. Classics does not save your life. Oh, Mary, don't say that. Uh, <laughs> although you're probably right. We, we, we have to move move on, Mary. But one, because I want to just talk about one other review that's in, in the paper, which is uh, Joy Connolly reviewing Tim Whitmarsh's book called Battling the Gods about the ancient engagement with the notion of the non-existence, I suppose, of the divine. One of the things that struck me reading it and has struck me generally is that there were periods in classical times when people were willing, again, in quite a modern way, to challenge the existence of, of the gods to and also, in parallel perhaps, to be tolerant about the existence of different belief systems to their own. Do you think that's a, that's a reasonable inference to draw at, at any period, both with the Romans and the Greeks, I think? Yeah, I mean, I think tolerance is quite a difficult word to use in relation to the ancient world, because somehow tolerance implies that you're in a position where you might choose not to be. And I'm not sure that I'm entirely with Whitmarsh on this, but I think that for most of the ancient world, what we have fixated upon as particularly well-policed belief systems it is not an appropriate model for understanding ancient religion. The ancients were occasionally nasty to people, and nasty to people who thought differently from themselves. You know, why is Socrates put to death? That's <laughs> the classic example. But in, in a sense, it was a, a, a system that was much freer in the ideas of intellectual inquiry. But in a sense, we have to distinguish that, I think, from imagining that the ancients were somehow kind of nice modern liberals avant lettre. Yeah. Uh, they were living in a culture in which to police what people thought was not usually, it was occasionally, and obviously eventually the persecution of Christians does that in a particularly horrible way, but it usually that was not on the agenda. It's I ironic in terms of Christianity because, of course, that policing of doubt, the policing of challenging orthodoxy, then became very much a feature yeah. of Christianity for the next 1,500, 1,800 years. Yeah. Mm. Yes, and, I mean, in a sense, you, you move from a religion of practice and intellectual inquiry, in a sense, parallel to religious practice, to a religion of text and of doctrine, of faith and of signing up. And as soon as you've got, I mean, the, the, as the Whitmarsh book and the Connolly Review brings out, if you don't have doctrinal texts, it's much harder to, um, or, or it's much harder to see what the point of the policing system would be. What are you policing? Mary, we're going to have to le leave it there. I could talk about this uh, with you for, for an inordinate length of time, which I think would frustrate listeners if I sort of uh, <laughs> I uh, gave, gave full reign to that. But uh, they're, they're really interesting pieces, aren't they? And I, I think that sort of the thin thread between them is is about how modernity looks at classicism. And, and there are profitable lessons to be learned around that's that. That's absolutely right. And I think it, it, you know, this is, of course, my hobby horse. Each of those pieces justifies why we need people to go on working on these things. We can't actually translate Aristophanes, as Goldhill makes clear. He does indeed. Mary Beard, thank you so much for joining <laughs> us today. Bye. Lucy, we're going to move on, but before I just want to place on record, you did once perform in an Aristophanes play dressed as a flamingo. Flamingo, I was. If I remember rightly, I, I was a flamingo. I don't think it was the world's best performance, and luckily there is no record of it. And did you, did you have many lines? No, all I can remember is, is balancing on one leg a lot. Terrifying stuff. 
Our freelance column this week is by Turkish writer Jan Dundar. He was until recently the editor-in-chief of the Cumhuriyet newspaper. In May 2016, he was sentenced to five years and ten months in prison on a charge of revealing state secrets. This was because he dared to publish an article revealing the secret transfer of arms from the Turkish government to Syria. After his arrest, he was detained for 92 days on the charge of carrying out an act of terrorism, only to be released when a court decided it was an act of journalism. Jan is currently appealing against the verdict. Three members of the court that freed him have, since the coup, been dismissed. The original prosecutor has also since been promoted to chief prosecutor. Jan, thank you so much for joining us. You write in the TLS beautifully, tragically, about your experience. Can you first explain to us what exactly has happened to you? Well, what happened to me is unfortunately nothing new for journalists in Turkey. I was simply the latest target of a long-established intolerant mentality that tries to cover up its own crimes by accusing us. Our crime is nothing more than publishing the facts that needed to be known, and I was not the first victim and obviously won't be the last one in the struggle. Writing the truth has a very heavy price in here. My paper, the Cumhuriyet alone, has given five victims writers assassinated because of their ideas and writings. And Turkey today is considered as the biggest prison for journalists in the world, according to the latest report of RSF, Journalists Without Frontiers. And more than a hundred of my colleagues are either under custody or arrested at the moment. The rest are working under heavy pressure, either from the government or media owners. And fear and censorship, self-censorship, have been undermining our duty to reveal the truth. I'm lucky enough to be released before the coup because the crackdown on media has intensified afterwards. And you were you were sentenced to five years and ten months in prison. And what is going to happen to you now? What's what what happens next? I, yes, I sent I was sentenced to five years and ten months imprisonment. Although I appealed the higher court, but. I've lost my faith in the judiciary since the declaration of the state of emergency. So the, the judiciary is now totally under government control. And uh, we are trying to struggle against that. You, you talk in, in, in the piece about what happens. You, you, were, you were detained for 92 days. And you say that writers imprisoned before me had prepared me for detention like travel guides to foreign lands. Who were the writers that you were thinking of when you were, you were put in prison? Dostoevsky first. For example, Oscar Wilde, Cervantes, Stefan Zweig, Nazem Hikmet, to name but a few that gave voice to the world behind bars under repressive rulers. Normally, we grew up reading their memories, poems, novels, and prepared ourselves for a similar destiny. When I entered my cell last winter, it looked very familiar to me, thanks to the guidance of my predecessors. Uh, This is a kind of intergenerational relay race in which you hand the flag of suffering to a newcomer and it's a dreadful tradition that needs to be eliminated tell us about your own writing in prison uh, john because you, you you in the piece you saw about you 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 could write notes uh, but you couldn't really talk to your fellow prisoners you had your own little yard to exercise in so you threw notes that you wrote over to to, to your fellow prisoners yeah that's true we, we were not allowed to use a computer or a typewriter uh, in our cells, so we had to write everything by hand. Taking the papers out was another problem. Normally, you had to hand them to 
to administration for approval, you had to find other ways to take them out. Now, of course, I don't want to reveal our secret ways of communication here, but one method was the one you just mentioned. Wrap them around a plastic bottle and lob the bottle over the wall between the yards. The other one was a bit harder. Write the article, keep it in your mind. When your lawyer comes to see you, leave the paper at the cell and write the article on a paper again during that meeting with the lawyer. So I assure you that when there's a will, there's a way to communicate, no matter what the circumstances. Well, in many ways, you're a, you're a, you're a living symbol of, of that. You talked about what happened since the failed coup. Uh, are you pessimistic about the prospects of, of your country uh, with, with Erdogan now really increasing his grip on power since the failed coup? In a way, yeah, I must say that it was a very dangerous and bloody attempt, was foiled thanks to the brave resistance of the people, but the post-traumatic syndromes are still there. Uh, under the state of emergency conditions, a witch hunt of sorts has been launched against the opponents of the government, and to date, around 30,000 people have been detained, and the crackdown on the media went into overdrive, more than 100 media outlets were closed down. There's a growing patriotic tendency towards isolation. And I'm afraid Turkey is drastically distancing itself from Europe. And the anti-Western climate is so high that national theater has just been given instructions banning foreign plays. That means no more Shakespeare or Brecht in Turkish theaters. theaters. And this is this is the psychology that dominates the government for the moment. Returning to you for 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 a moment, your case will be reheard, I presume. Is there anything people in this country can do to support you, Jan? Because when someone tyrannizes and terrorizes a journalist, it's 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 both important for you as an individual, but it's but it's important for all of us as human beings. Is there something we can do, people in this country, to support you? Many things, and thank you for asking me that question. Well, we need a strong solidarity from the world. So join the campaigns for the release of the journalists and writers in Turkish prisons, for example. Condemn the laws, regulations and actions against the freedom of press in Turkey. Give prisoners of thought space in your papers to voice their ideas and share their feelings. Publish their names and addresses and encourage your readers to, to write directly to them. Come to watch the hearings, for example. Make them feel that they are not alone and that the world stands by them. Please bear in mind that the modern secular side of Turkey suffering today needs the help and the support of international solidarity to overcome this repression. Well, Janice, it's a huge privilege to have you in the pages of the TLS and, and on our podcast now. And, and we're very happy to, to publish you and we should be publishing more people like you because people need to know that this country that is a holiday destination for British people, it is in Europe, as you, you know, physically in Europe, and effectively uh, is becoming this authoritarian state where people can be arrested and imprisoned for the crime of, of having independent thoughts. My privilege. Thank you very much. John, thank you so much. What an extraordinary man, and what an extraordinary... It's a, it's a lovely piece, and he talks he talks throughout it about what it was like to, to be placed in solitary confinement, and he got out after three months. But he's still facing five years in prison. Pleading the cause for everybody else as well. Yeah. yeah. No, I, and, I, and I was struck by the, 
how literary it is. It is. I mean, it's really is a beautifully kind of turned piece. It's not a howl of rage. It's, no. uh, it's very considered. And he, he, he talks about reading Stefan Zweig and uh, he ordered a chess story and read that there. And I was thinking it's a very literary tradition, writing about chess. Yeah. Nabokov did it and Zweig did it and various other people did it. But I don't know who else has done that under such high stakes. And to actually, be able to be to say, oh, look, this is like a chess game. What's going to happen And he actually next? talks about them playing chess on bits of paper and throwing it over between cells. So they played games of chess. Yeah. Using. Considering the, the, the situation they were in and the situation that they're all still in. Uh, is extraordinary to be able to to keep that presence of mind and that kind of line of thought, I suppose, and that that, that tradition going. Probably the lesson for all of us is that we can't forget about what's going on in Turkey because we are so saturated by tragedy and saturated by horror now and, and everyone is in some ways so connected via social media that you almost hear of a, something terrible and it grips you for a second and then you move on to something else that is terrible and it's easy to forget about Turkey because mm. the coup's over and Erdogan is imprisoning 30,000, you know, he's, he's, he's taking this massive grab of yeah. more power and we can almost shrug our shoulders about it. And yet he's a real person waiting to find out what's going to happen in the court that sounds, that he says now is entirely under the government's control. Yeah. Shocking stuff, so do please listen to his words there and anything you can do to continue the support. We at the TLS will continue to do it as well because Standing up for writers, standing up for journalists is something that we, particularly those of us living in, in Britain where we do have freedoms, we do have free press, we do have the right of free speech, it's important that we use it in a good cause. That is almost all we have time for this week. Thank you very much to Lucy. You're back next week as well. I am, yep. Lovely. And to Jan Dundar, Mary Beard and Claire Loudon. Please do subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and we will be back every week with highlights from the TLS and discussions on other cultural subjects. This week's paper is now on sale with the pieces we have discussed today, plus Alex Blasdell on 100 Years of US National Parks, Bart Van Es on new interpretations of Hamlet the play, Rodri Lewis on how old Hamlet the character was, Claire Griffiths on the paintings of Winifred Knights, Adam Mars-Jones on the women of Pedro Almodovar, Marjorie Peloff on Adrienne Rich, William Philpott on the Somme, Elizabeth Lowry on a terrible story of a lost father in Libya, and Ros Caveney on two giants of science fiction. You can visit our website da-tls.co.uk to learn more about our print and digital subscriptions and follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at the TLS. Until next week, from Lucy and from me, goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.